This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to New Books Network. I'm Diadamsu Longomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Michael Henais to talk about his book, Agency and Knowledge in Northeast India. Now, this book is um, the work done by Dr. Henais is something uh, which is very essential in a sense of the book focuses on the uh, Angami community of Nagaland. And I think this is where the aspect of, he explores the aspect of dreaming and how it has its effect on the social reality, the, their lived reality of the Angami Nagas. And I think this is a very important work and also an important work, especially for Nagaland, but also at the same time for Northeast India and India as a whole, because I think dreams are some things uh, which are very an important aspect among the communities that he has worked and also at the same time, the Northeast India as well. So I think like every other community, I think dreams have become a very important aspect of the social life in, the, in this part of the world. So I'm very excited to be here with Michael Hennais to talk about this work. And as I've gone through this work, I see the the, the field work and the material conceptual richness in, in the book. And that is where uh, I'm also really excited to kind of explore this work. Because since I am, as a host, I'm also from Northeast Indiana, I always would want to try to explore the academic works from Northeast India. I think this is the second work that I've, I'm exploring with Dr. Michael Hennais. And uh, I'm hoping that in the future we'll explore more academic work on Northeast India. So let me just go straight to Dr. Michael here and talk to him. So Dr. Michael Hennais, can you just briefly give a short introduction about yourself? Well, thank you, Chatimsu. Um, well, I'm uh, an anthropologist. I'm originally from the United States, and this book is based on my doctoral research that was done through the University of Edinburgh in Scotland uh, between 2011 and roughly 2016. And the fieldwork component was conducted between 2013, more or less, and 2015. Um, so it's about two and a half years of fieldwork. I think in the book itself, I say two years, but uh, it was it was a bit more than that. 
Yeah, very interesting. And can you tell us uh, something more about yourself uh, now? Uh, what are you doing now? And you know your history as to educational academic history. Yeah. Well, I started anthropology in Ecuador. I was working as a um, as a consultant for a development firm in Latin America, and I was the program manager for projects, sort of in Colombia and. Peru, in Chile, in Brazil, in Argentina, and also in the Caribbean, in, in Haiti, and in the Dominican Republic. And that was really my my focus. My, my work was very much on um, sort of microfinance. It was on uh, education. Uh, I had a large agricultural project in Haiti and reforestation. So I, I come from a, a background in kind of development studies, but also like project management. So I was doing a lot of these kinds of this kind of work uh, in Latin America. Um, and my office was in Quito in, in Ecuador. So but that, but I felt something was missing. You know, I, I did have a background in ethnomusicology, and that was kind of how I was introduced to Northeast India uh, back in 2001 uh, when I first went to, to Guwahati as an ethnomusicologist. Um, and so I looked for evening courses in Ecuador. I had heard about the Latin American School of Social Sciences, which in Spanish is called Facultad Latinoamericana de Ciencias Sociales, FLAXO. And so I enrolled in their, their anthropology masters and did evening courses there. And my classmates were priests and shamans and anthropologists and Marxists and activists. And oh, I was so rich. Um, and I was just transported into this world of anthropology. Um, and it's one of the few times, you know, sometimes when you go into a classroom with lots of energy, you come out drained. <laughs> but this was the opposite. Uh, I would work a full day and then go to my evening class and I would be energized. I would get home so energized to my apartment. It's just my whole mind was just exploding with ideas and, and excitement about anthropology. So for me, this was obviously the next step. Uh, so when I entered entered the PhD, I, uh, I, I, I went straight for anthropology. And I focused on dreams because back in 2000. Two, um, I was invited back to do a workshop uh, in Mokokchong, actually, uh, on ethnomusicology. I was invited by the Nagaland Baptist Church Council to come and basically talk to young people about music and about uh, composing, composing new music based on sort of Naga culture, not not just adopting from outside, and and really encouraging new compositions um and my host in kohima after after the conference was Easterine kire she was known in those days as Easterine iralu but um she and i used to walk through town talking for hours and i remember uh sitting up at the cemetery uh the grass was beautiful the the the, the city was beautiful and we were just talking about you know just kind of talking about Naga culture, and I was so curious. What what is this place? You know, um, and she said, uh, and 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 she kept talking about dreams, and I and I I asked her, what is this about dreams? I keep hearing people talk about dreams, and I 
she said, you know, someday if you ever do a PhD, you should do it on dreams. So uh, that was back in 2002, and that kind of stayed with me. So that's kind of more or less how I started this this journey. Yeah, I mean, re- really interesting history um, in that sense. And so for the worldwide audience, um, they will not know about the uh, people that you have written about, that is the Angami Naga. So can you just tell us something about them and also about um, previously you told about something about how the book came about. So now can you just tell us something about the Angami Nagas and also the Nagaland as a whole? Okay. I had heard about the Nagas um, at a conference in the United States. Uh, there was, it was a missions conference that I was invited to, again, as an ethnomusicologist. Um, and they showed this video of these, uh, of Nagaland, um, with choirs and people singing. And I found it really interesting because in the midst of Northeast India, this really rich universe of cultures and languages, um, the Nagas really stood out because of their, because of their Baptist Christianity. It was this really interesting corner of the world where, there were a majority of Baptists. There were sort of these big Baptist churches on the top of the hills. Um, so I, I thought this was a really interesting thing. And of course, as a musician, I was really drawn by the the, the amazing singing, you know, the melodies, the uh, the energy behind the music. Um, so I, the Angami are one of the one of the major groups in Nagaland. Uh, they are based in the south southern part of the state um they so you know so kohima which is the administrative capital of the state is majority angami that's kind of the angami uh central uh, space sort of um and there are different of course different uh, linguistic groups even within the Angami. So this would be kind of Northern Angami, more or less. And then Hutton, which was one of these British ethno, you know, ethnographers, anthropologists, and um, administrators. Uh, when he settled in Nagaland, he, he, he went up and settled in Kohima. So his writings, which, went, which ended up being very important for sort of um, discussing the Naga or Naga culture in the West or for, for Western audiences, uh, it really started with the Angami. And it started with Konoma, which is a Western Angami. Uh, but that ended up kind of shaping um, Western ideas about the Nagas. Uh, Hutton's extensive photo- photographs, he also recorded wax, so, you know, he had these wax cylinder recordings of Naga singers, and they were often Angami. Um, so that's kind of the starting point for the anthropological gaze into the Nagas was really with the Angami. So that's essentially who they are. Um, and I, I found, I found the Angami particularly interesting because there was this rich archive and then, and, and Hutton talks about dreams. He talks a lot about dreams, but he leaves it as a big question mark. And then of course, when I, when I visited Nagaland, Easterine, was this amazing host uh, who was talking also about dreams and how this was such an important aspect of of everyday life, even though Christianity and conflict and all these other things have been written about, very little has been done kind of on this 
really important social aspect. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, take it up. So that's, that's sort of what I did. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Now coming to the methodological and also the conceptual theoretical aspect of uh, trimming, obviously there are many works on this and there are many anthropological works on this and there are many lenses by which you can look at trimming. Now it all trims and that aspect. So uh, in this book, uh, which um, perspectives, uh, perspective are you taking or which methodological standpoint are you taking or conceptual aspect in trying to understand trimming among the Angaminaka's trims? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, one of the big and, and interesting debates um, within anthropology has been, you know, this idea of the, the phenomenological method, which is basically bracketing our own um, positionalities, our own epistemologies, in a sense, and, and allowing um, the, the people that we work with, the communities where we're living as anthropologists, uh, to speak. And the same goes with theory. Um, I think oftentimes we, as researchers, we kind of come in with a particular framework in mind, um, a theoretical framework, and then we, we just try to understand the world that we're seeing or that we're observing or we're studying through that theoretical framework. And dream researchers in the 80s, particularly Barbara Tedlock, um, she, she was part of this kind of whole movement of researchers working on dreams they were saying you know actually the communities where we're working they have their own theories they have their own understandings they have very sophisticated um uh, and quite uh, elaborate theories so why don't we allow those theories to come to come to the fore to, to surface and to inform us to teach us uh to teach the world to teach the audience about uh, different ways of knowing the world and understanding the world and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn what, how it was that the Angami in particular, the Naga in general, but the Angami in particular, conceived or conceptualized dreams and dreaming and how this fit into the larger cosmology and, and sort of ontological framework. So, and, and of course, um, this kind of approach also informs theology. It, it informs uh, ideas about the, the divine and, and about power. Um, so this, this, I think was the doorway and dreams ended up being kind of the, the entryway into all these other things. Of course, when you, as you know, when you're, when you're a researcher and anthropologist, you begin with an idea and that idea ends up being a doorway into all these other things. Like, so even though I was studying dreams, I was also studying politics and economics and geography and landscape and, um, so all of those things did certainly come in, but uh, but I felt it was interest. It was particularly interesting to to understand this, you know, the Angami theory. And and Hutton was kind of raised that question in 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 his uh, book on the Angamis. He asked. He raised that question. You know, they have almost a theory of dreams. Of course, they have a theory of dreams. But but let's hear what that is. Sort of, so instead of imposing, you know, this sort of psychoanalytical lens, which of course is very rich and very, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of both Jung and Freud, um, largely for other reasons though, uh, more sort of philosophical reasons, because I think they, they have a, an incredible amount of depth uh, 
and we're just scratching the surface. I mean, but but in terms of in terms of doing participant observation or anthropological work in a place like Nagaland, I think it's really important to to focus on the local theories. Yeah, that's quite important, and the phenomenological aspect is something uh, which is quite interesting in that sense. So now, I mean, one of the major chunk of the chapter is like the second chapter where you talk about the Angami signs of trimming, and here you talk about yeah, since you also have mentioned you talk about Hutton. So how did Hutton conceptualize or understood trimming uh, among the Angami Nagas? Well, I think he was he was curious. Um, we have kind of this interesting set of documents, letters, correspondence, um, particularly with Seligman. Seligman was kind of a student of Freud and interested in sort of a comparative, almost a global comparative study of dreams. So he was collecting dream narratives from across the world um, at that time. You know, this is the age of, of fast shipping and fast communication, at least the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, the, the, the global connections are very quick at that point. And, and so there's a lot of reports coming in. You can, you can ask missionaries, uh, colonial officers, people in the civil service. You can ask uh, all kinds of travelers, people who are maybe in Burma or in India or in Africa for business. They can, they can kind of speak with, with local communities about, about sort of ethnographic data. So, so Hutton is kind of responding to Seligman's um, request for dream, uh, for ideas about dreams, or theories about dreams, or narratives, dream narratives, um, and dream symbols, because this symbols ends up being very a very interesting way in which you can compare dreams, sort of between Amazon and Asia, or between Africa, and so like the Zulu communities in South Africa were one of these places where. Uh, a lot of British anthropologists, American anthropologists, uh, and European scholars were were visiting because they 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 seemed to have um, a lot of material culture. They had very rich performances. In fact, if you if you look at the early Zulu dances and you compare them to sort of the Angami uh, war dances and ceremonies that were recorded in those times, they're very close. They're very similar. Um, so this this ended up being a, a very interesting question in anthropology at that time. Like, what can we say anything about indigenous cultures um, if we compare them? You know, is are these things comparable? And I think dreams ends up being a really interesting thing. We find out that in the Amazon, a broken tooth in a dream is a bad dream. Um, of course, among many Nagas, Garos. Um, Actually, across Asia, you find that if you dream of a broken tooth, it's a bad thing. In fact, uh, I think in the Angami culture, yeah, the loss of a tooth or or a broken tooth or or yeah, that kind of dream actually points to death or or serious illness. Um, so it's interesting how um, so these this is how the energy or this is how Hutton began. Uh, his own interest in dreams, but he really leaves lots of question marks more than answers. He's really interested. He he sees a lot of curious things happening. People are talking about their dreams, and then they're they're basing their daily decisions on what they dreamed the night before, as if you know there's the dreams are kind of foretelling the future in some way. And and now I have to kind of rearrange my schedule because I'm pretty sure I shouldn't go down the hill. 
maybe I should avoid traveling here. Maybe I should stop this business interaction that I was going to, to do. Or maybe I need to go and visit my uncle because I think he's probably sick uh, and I just had a bad dream about that. So that ends up being a really interesting thing for Hutton, but he doesn't explore it further because then he leaves. Um, but but I think that's that's the thing. He you know he he opens up these big questions, and then it's up to us you know to kind of pick them up again. Yeah, and I think that is where the, this book book also comes in. And I, coming to the next aspect is uh, where trimming us. Uh, I mean, trimming is part of traversing different realities. And this is where you also come to the third chapter where you talk about the phenomenology of trimming. And that is where, you know, you talk about the notions of personhood among the Angaminakas. So what are some of the notions of personhood that are there among the Angaminakas and how these different kind of, you know, different kind of persons that are that exist in the reality, how do they understand it? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, now you're now you're delving deep into my own theoretical ideas, which I haven't uh, I haven't uh, really looked at for a while. But um, I mean, I was I was really interested in um, trying to understand the relationship between you know the person, the community, and sort of the wider world. Um, there seemed to be there seemed to be a lot of emphasis within dream research on sort of the psychological, the sort of um, conscious, subconscious, waking, sleeping, a lot of sort of mental images, very sort of cognitive focus on dreams. And I found, or I wanted to experiment at least, I wanted to explore the idea that dreams actually kind of go beyond that, that there is a sense of, of, of the body. Um, you know, there's this tiger man phenomena in, in Naga culture. It's not just in the Nagas, it's in various, uh, various cultures, the Kasis, the, the Achik, the Garo, um, and, and further afield, even, even among the Karbi, I believe. And there is this very interesting, of course, field of, of sort of shamanic healing that st- spreads across Tibet and and, um, and the Asian highlands. And there's all of these other specialists that use dreams as a, as a way of engaging in their practices of healing or of foretelling or of, uh, you know, if, if you, or even of learning things like uh, epics or funeral dirges, uh, uh, funeral songs, and dreams are always kind of used as a as a way of gaining knowledge or of transferring knowledge or of uh, expressing knowledge. Or um, so I wanted to get away from the cognitive theory of dreams and then shift towards some of these more bodily, more kind of um, corporeal ways of sort of understanding dreams as, as maybe a part of a, a part of um, this sort of uh, body mind and natural nexus they they're they're linked in in a in ways that we were not exploring at least i don't feel we are and that's why that's why merleau-ponty and phenomenology ended up being very very interesting uh, my, my supervisors, I remember being 
they were quite um, irritated at one point when I started to <laughs> study philosophy in the middle of my field research. I mean, I was kind of going out and doing interviews, and then I was coming home and reading Merleau-Ponty and Husserl and Heidegger, because I found all kinds of really interesting continuities with phenomenology, because phenomenology talks about the, the body as um, as being kind of in the world. Um, it is connected with the world. We're, the, the way that we can understand and perceive the world is because we are in it, or we are part of it, we're connected to it. Um, and Angami notions of Rofu, which is this idea of spirit or, or of um, the, sort of the human spirit, but also the, the sort of Rofu, even in the Bible translation, the Angami translation of the Bible is called uh, Kemesa Rofu, which means clean spirit or, uh, you know, that's, so there's this idea of the spirit, which is which is out there, but it's also in me, you know, in us as individuals. So personhood is really this playing with this idea of, um, you know, our, our sort of positionality in the world uh, with, with this notion of the spirit within and the spirit without. And in one interview, I was, uh, I was asking, so I was asking one of my informants about this idea of Rufa, and he, and he kind of stopped for a moment and he said, you know, actually in, in Angami cosmology, Rafa also means nature. It's not just this idea of spirit or soul, but it's also the idea of nature. So what we see when we leave the village and we go into the forest, that's also Rafa, you know, this idea of, of, of spirit. And I, and I just got chills down my back and I thought, oh my God, this is awesome. Um, and I wanted to really explore what what is this relationship between the human and the and the natural world that is so deeply connected uh in ways that in the in our western epistemological approaches we have just continued to dance around without actually being willing to go in uh in a more serious way and i think that's i think that's kind of the new space where anthropology is going to be exploring and we're going to need the help of Angamis, Aos, Sumis, Nagas, uh, and other sort of indigenous scholars to help us into that territory, because that's a territory that's, that, that we feel is just too dangerous right now, particularly with the sort of whole science religion debates. Um, but I think, I think this, is, this is generally where I was going to when I was talking about personhood. When you are explaining all these things, it really uh, resonates with me as a scholar now doing research among the Nagas and you know trying to understand this aspect of personhood. And all of, obviously, as you know, I'm taking uh, I, I'm cleaning a lot from the work of uh, works in New Animism by anthropologists. And many of the anthropologists are theorizing on all of those aspects, but also at the same time, I'm trying to dig deep into the, the philosophy literatures and as you have said, our phenomenology. I think this is where. I think, uh, and I think in my work also, I also mentioned that, you know, th this work is in a, in a very nascent stage and we need to really uh, go forward in uh, terms of our academic conceptualization as well as trying to do rigorous uh, fieldwork in that, in that sense. So I think this is where uh, I think our work also kind of like comes together and also at the same time will be an, I believe your work will be an inspiration 
situation that people do really go deep deeper uh, in that sense now coming to the next aspect is where you talk about reversibility and i think this is where you talk about the uh, materiality and the corporality of the streams in, in that sense so, so how does this uh, what is this concept of reversibility and how does this come uh, um, how do you bring it about in terms of trying to understand the streams in terms of the material and the corporal aspect good question um well, Merleau-Ponty, I, I, what I do is I, I really pick up this idea from Merleau-Ponty's later works, um, particularly The Visible and the Invisible, which is one of his, uh, I think, most important. It's almost like a culmination, uh, not just a culmination of all of his work, but also it, it starts to, to open new, a new area. Uh, and then he dies. So we, we don't actually he, we hear his full mature uh, development of, of the idea of reversibility. But we have a, a really interesting set of ideas that revolve around dreams because he, he started to really take up dreams more seriously in his later, later works. Um, my main focus, or at least my interpretation of this in light of, the ethno, of my ethnographic work, uh, and kind of what I was gleaning from the interviews and from just kind of sitting there in the village for years and years <laughs> um, was was that we we basically go back and forth between conscious and unconscious uh, imagination um, in the sense that we daydream all the time. We're always shifting out of consciousness in the sense that we're in a sense of like attention. Um, you could, for example, be in a lecture. Um, you, you might, you might remember the first few minutes of the, of the lecture, and then your mind starts to wander. Your mind starts to go in and out. Um, and I, you know, I see this with my students all the time and then you'll be kind of awake again. So in the sense that your attention will be then focused on the lecture again, you'll start taking notes. Again. And there's all these sort of techniques that we have when we're at a conference or at a workshop or at a lecture to try to capture as much of the lecture as we can by shifting a little bit our body or by putting our laptop there so that we're taking notes so that we don't, so that we don't miss what the, the lecturer is saying. Because our natural state, our natural way of existing in the world does mean that we shift away from attention into imagination. It's a, it's a constant switch um, between, even if you're driving sometimes, sometimes you'll be driving for a long time and then all of a sudden you'll wake up and you'll wonder how it is that I just traveled five kilometers without even, and I don't remember those five kilometers, but I was certainly awake and I was able to drive, but my mind was somewhere else, you know. Um, in, in dreams, in the process of dreaming, this happens as well. Uh, we tend to shift within the dream. Sometimes those shifts are really interesting. We go from a first person perspective in the dream to a third person perspective. We start to see ourselves doing actions. We, we, we can watch ourselves. Our, we can see our face. We can see kind of how we walk, how we look. And then suddenly we're in the first person again, and we're seeing kind of the world from the dreamer's perspective. These shifts are really interesting. Conceptually, I think they are critical to our understanding of, of personhood because there's a division. There's a division within ourselves of ourselves. We're kind of watching ourselves. 
we're, we're seeing ourselves, we're observing ourselves. And then specialists, people who, who are healers or, or who use sort of dreams or use mediums for, for gaining knowledge, they often speak of out-of-body processes, right? They, they remove themselves from the body. They're able to travel across distances. They're able to kind of see things um, from that out-of-body experience. Uh, and then they come back into the body. So those are all, I think, aspects of reversibility in the sense that we are constantly conscious and going from consciousness back into imagination and then back into consciousness. So this this division between waking and sleeping is not so important anymore. Um, now, one thing I, I thought was very interesting from Walter Benjamin, he said that uh, waking up from a dream or waking from sleep is is sort of the birth of 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 um, of dialectical thinking. It's kind of this moment where we're not sure what's real, what's not real, and so we engage in this process of trying to figure out what what's concrete and what's not concrete. Um, and that's kind of our mind trying to make sense of the world, right? Um, and I think Merleau-Ponty goes further than that, and he says, "Well, we're always." in that process of going back and forth. And I think through socialization or, or sort of acculturation, we've become, uh, you know, we've become socialized into putting emphasis on one or the other. In the West, we've taken all emphasis away from dreams. We see them as just nonsense now. But in many non-Western cultures, this is not the case at all. In fact, the majority of the world uh, understands that there's that dreams play a, a really critical role but it's not just dreams it's it's daydreams it's it's those moments when we lose our attention even in waking reality even when the sun is bright or and um and our mind begins to wander it begins to could imagine and just to finish up that thought um in the end of the book i talk about this funeral that i went to and there's this really interesting relationship between ideology or the the sort of the, the the sort of really powerful imagery that we use at political rallies or at concerts with music there's there's a there's a certain language emotive language that causes our souls causes causes us to 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 enter into a, a new state of of excitement or of emotion and that's often in a space where those two, where attention and and receding into imagination reside. It's this, and I think uh, this, you know, some of the emotionalism that we see in, in Christian worship or at a rave concert or in these really emotive moments, even at political rallies, those spaces should be studied more because that it's, it's playing with people's, with that, moment of reversibility that sort of fulcrum between am i perceiving something real or am i sort of retreating into this imaginary world well it's that it's right on that fulcrum that we begin to kind of uh, see these process of of emotionalism take take root um anyway i, I know I've, I've said a lot on that but but i think this is for me this is just sort of the beginning of of exploring kind of the, the, the this this uh, this space and I think it's um, something that's been ignored uh, in the anthrop in anthropology in particular 
Yeah, and I think the idea of reversibility in that sense does justice to somehow trying to understand this aspect. So I think that is a very uh, interesting perspective and also something which, yeah, as you have said, needs to be explored further. Now, coming to the next one, you talk about interference. Now, Nagalen is um, celebrating the 150th year of Christianity this year, and I think it will be a big celebration in Nagaland. So this is where you talk about the uh, Christianity and also the the interpretative community of dreams and how dreams have really taken shape even uh, among the uh, Christians here. So, um, so how how has dream uh, been uh, a part in trying to you know for the Christian community, right? Trying to build up their faith or you know be an uh, aspect in their social reality, the live reality uh, uh, in the in the new religion that they have found, which was Christianity, which was brought about by the missionaries. So, how does dream play a part in this one? Oh, great question. Um, well, I I think that, you know, of course, the Bible is full of dream imagery and, and it, you find dreams mentioned so many times in the Bible that it's, it's just everywhere. And yet, sort of mo- modern Christian missionary movements, uh, particularly evangelical Christianity, have kind of pushed away on some of these, these ideas. Um, and the missionaries, when they encountered practices that they weren't familiar with or ideas that they weren't familiar with, they they became kind of um, problems that they tried to, you know, there was, of course, alcoholism and, and, and sort of uh, other kinds, you know, sorcery, I don't know. They, they found all kinds of... Um, things that they didn't understand or practices that they didn't understand so that then so then they linked you know those things with with membership of of the church so if you're going to be a member you have to get rid of all of that you have to like let go of all of that uh to become a christian you have to kind of just let go of of these practices and these beliefs and the and unfortunately um the deeply cultivated practice of dreaming and that ended up being kind of thrown away with the bathwater. um well, to, to an extent. And one of the things that I, I argue in the book is that, you know, when you go into a Naga kitchen, and uh, if you're invited into a Naga kitchen, that's already a sign of trust. Uh, you're not, all, not all guests are kind of taken into the back of the home, to the hearth, to the fire, and served a meal or tea or, and, have, and, and to have conversation around the hearth. I mean, that's actually one of the most intimate family spaces and and it's not a public space it's intentionally not that way in most well if not all cultures um in in naga culture that's typically where you share dreams in the early morning hours uh, you'll sit around the hearth and you'll share tea and you'll kind of talk about your dreams sometimes dreams don't mean anything sometimes they are taken to mean a lot um and then you might decide one way or another to do this or that. If it's a particularly bad dream, you, you mentioned this idea of, of interruption. If you think it's a particularly bad dream, you know who to go talk to. There's an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother or maybe somebody from the church, a counselor who's gifted in listening and in praying and in counseling on on dreams. Um, and the idea is that the, the power of that dream will be lessened, right? It'll be interrupted in a sense. Uh, if 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 something's done 
by someone who's a specialist. They can lessen the impact of, of a dream, of a bad dream. Obviously, if it's a good dream, you want to actually increase its value or, or increase its worth, its, increase its power by doing the same kind of thing. I had this amazing dream. Can we pray about it? Because I want it to be even more amazing, you know? Um, so the thing is the church focused a lot on what, on the public rituals, on the things that are visible. Um, so a lot of that was discarded. A lot of people changed the way they dressed and they, and, and a lot of the ceremonies and rituals were of course, uh, let go. But all of these domestic practices, the things that happened in the kitchens and the hearths and the, in the homes remained. So the ancient recipes of Naga food, those remained. The stories, the narratives, the, the dream sharing and the, and the dream narrating and the dream interpretation, those all remained. The language, um, the mother language, those remained. Um, so you have a whole aspect of Naga culture that has been preserved because it hasn't been uh, there. It's in the spaces that are, that are out, out of the sort of public eye, so to speak. Um, so they're not being sort of targeted by, uh, by the evangelical movement. Now the church of course is a much more diverse church. Now you have the revival movements, you have various versions of the old missionary church. Um, you have Pentecostal movements and charismatic movements. Um, and a lot of the charismatic variants are now recognizing that so much of Naga cultural practices were not necessarily antagonistic theologically to the stories and to the narratives and to the teachings of the Bible. Um, so I think what's happening now is there's kind of a resurgence of interest in theology. How can we develop a contextual Naga theology? How can we develop a new, a new set of understandings, frameworks, theories, concepts that begins to understand the Bible through Naga terms. And I think the next 15, 20 years is going to be a really exciting moment because students are going to start taking up this task of, of re-theologizing. Um, of course, we have little moments of that in from Jorhat in the 80, late 80s and 90s with the Tribal Studies Journal. Uh, a lot of work was being done. Uh, by uh, several scholars in Jorhat, but but it really hasn't really been taken up. And I think places like Oriental Theological Seminary, OTS, places like this are beginning to recognize, well, I think they've known this for a long time, but how do we then take really seriously this idea of a, of a contextual Naga theology? Because I think these studies like mine on dreams and, and others, even the Tiger Man, that has to be conceptualized. That has to be thought through and we can't just ignore it and compartmentalize it and, and just assume that it's a, it's a whole, it fits a different category. That all has to be brought into this, this broader understanding. Uh, and I think that's going to help Naga Christianity to, to, to continue to grow and to mature. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's so much true. I mean, in my work, I also personally see that one in the sense of you know, the recent paper that I've written in that paper, I I also kind of like in a very subtle way talks about how theologians go clean from the, you know, the perspective, the framework that I've given and trying to better come up with a theology, right? The Naga theology of Christianity in that sense. I, I think that's what you've said. And also at the same time, you know, in my fieldwork, I, I've seen the diversity before when you look at Baptists and the revival, they were like... Uh, 
though at the, at the, at, the, at the first instance when you look out on uh, among the owls at the first instance like the baptist detest the revival you know there was so much against them but then at the same time somehow it got incorporated in the baptist churches and then i i things are coming on now the baptist is kind of like uh, detesting or against the you, you know more of the uh, charismatic or uh, so to say yeah those kind of churches and all but then at the same time the these people who are in the very charismatic uh, um you know aspects and all they are really uh, trying to kind of uh, give importance to all these divine revelation dreams and all of those aspects though they they say you know though they talk about our tradition in a negative way but also at the same time you know brings about these aspects so uh, that way i think the future of uh, the work here and the research will is going to be very interesting and then things are going to move in a very interesting way as you also mentioned and your work also really points out to that one so that is something which um, is really interesting for future scholarly work now coming to my last question you talk about the uh, role of science uh, role of science in in the public domain and specifically you talk about the political narratives and the political domain and the role of science in a sense uh, you know from the dreams uh, the science that you get from dreams and all uh, streams and all I, I think uh, when you talk about uh, the political narratives in relation to dream I think this this is a very you know genuine connection in that sense because I think uh, me also when I look at the Naga religion Christianity and all you cannot really dissect political the political aspect of it away from it because so much of what has to, what has to do with politics is so much detected by Christianity or the religion uh, and you know so so much of the discourse are going on so I think that's uh, one of the aspects so. Here you talk about uh, the the role of science in the political narratives, and you specifically talk about the Naga nationalism here. So, uh, how how does um, the dreams uh, play a role in the public domain, and specifically in the political domain? Okay, I, well, I mean, my approach is kind of takes cue, some cues from Marshall Solins. Uh, the late Marshall Solins, he, he died last year, I think. And, um, he, um, he gave a lecture in, in London called the, um, um, gosh, now I've, I'm drawing a blank, uh, the original political society, something, something to that effect. Yeah. And I think, I mean, his main argument was that, we should we should spend some we really need to spend some time understanding um the the invisibles the 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 domain of of the supernatural or the or the invisible world that is described in the stories described in the folk tales described in the sort of cosmology um of the communities where we work because because he sees that a lot of the patterns that are now kind of manifest in the political domain, in the economic domain, in the kind of physical domain, the, the visible domain, um, have their origination points in this cosmology, in this kind of um, in this um, world of of master spirits, spirits uh, and and divinities that that the early ethnographies uh, reflected and I think that's right we we've when we look at 
some of the early ceremonies, for example, and the way that people are dressed with these grand uh, head uh, ornaments and, and the feathers. And um, how often have we seen ethnographies describe or discuss where that comes from? Why is it that we carry those symbols? Why is it that we place so much importance into these ceremonial dresses? Where does that come from? Of course, it comes from um, the animals, the spirits, the, the, the invisibles, the terhomye, um, the, the encounters, the stories of encounters in the forests, you know. The, the master spirits of the mountains and the rivers, you know, this, this whole universe of beings where the humans are just a part of it. We're just a part of this broader, um, universe of, of entities, um, in, in, you know, in, in the sort of Naga cosmology. And I think if we're, if we're going to understand politics, if we're going to understand the visible, the things of, of, of every day, we can't just ignore this this broader sort of community of of beings and and agencies, uh, which the our informants talk about all the time. Uh, when I was um, when I was, I used to spend just hours and hours in Kohima at this uh, on the western yeah on the western slope of, of Kohima and Elkel. Um, with a lady, an elderly lady, who would talk all the time about her her grand her mother and uh, her grandmother, and sometimes I would I would come into the kitchen and, and I would hear her talking, and she's talking with somebody. She's actually having a conversation, and I go in and it's she's alone, but she's having this conversation with her mother, who for her is present. She's speaking to her ancestors, and she speaks to her ancestors not just in in daylight, she speaks to them in her dreams all the time. There's this deep relationship that people have with the ancestral, with with their ancestors, with uh, with their with their kin, and both living and dead, right? And then there's this broader uh, set of of actants or actors or, or agents within sort of uh, that are acting upon the world. So. I think I think politics, and this is something that uh, Dr. Yelle Wouters my, and myself are working on right now, is this idea of, the, of sort of a cosmopolitics, understanding this broader, how this broader world of ancestors and and ancestral obligations and um, and ab- obligations with the spirit world. You know, the establishment of a village in Nagaland uh, used to be because of a dream, or you would have some kind of discussion or, or dialogue, an agreement with a master spirit, a spirit owner of the land, because the land doesn't belong to humans, it belongs to the invisible world, to, to spirits, right? So in order for us to settle this land, to cultivate the fields, we have to enter into a contract, into an agreement with the provider, the the person, you know, the, the spirit entity that that kind of provides and and then tells us what we can hunt, what we can't hunt. Um, these relationships, these contracts, these these are all over Highland Asia, um, and we've forgotten that. We've forgotten how to theorize all of that, and and I think it has. I think a lot of what we see in the political realm today 
the way that we do politics, the way that we understand the community has been dissected from that other reality. Um, and we need to kind of bring those two back together again. We need to understand our politics based on, on, the, on, you know, for back of, for lack of a better word, religion, <laughs> because that's what it is. It's this appreciation or understanding that the world is more than just the visible world. Um, and I think the more we cultivate those theories of trying to understand the invisible world, because, you know, you, you study Chinese folk religion and you're studying spirits, which is something that people don't realize. Uh, these things are actually taken quite seriously and they enter into the political sphere in, in ways that we don't un quite understand. But I think that's going to be a really interesting field. And theologians will, will, love, will love this because then they'll have to figure out how to deal with all of that. <laughs> that sort of universe of of beings, right? Um, anyway, so I, I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, um, thank you for so much for that. I think um, is there anything that um, I've missed out or you like to say regarding the book? No, I mean I, I'm I'm glad it's uh, it's of interest to to scholars. For me, it's just kind of a maybe a a first entry you know, into the field in some ways. And uh, I, I really look forward to working with scholars such as yourself in continuing to explore uh, this really exciting space, these communities. And, you know, the Highland Institute, which is an institute that I, I helped start uh, back in 2013, the whole aim of that organization is really to provide resources and space so that we can engage in these kinds of conversations and hopefully energize young scholars to to really take up some of these big questions because we have a lot of talent and 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 you know a lot of these languages and and cultural understandings and and knowledge the immense imagine if we if we were to kind of convert two libraries the amount of knowledge that's kind of housed in our elders uh, we would just have Alexandrian-sized libraries all across the Northeast. Um, so we need to kind of make that happen. We can't just assume that that knowledge will continue somehow. It has to kind of be has to be cultivated by by our young scholars. So I very much look forward to that journey, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. Is there any project that you you are working on now or future upcoming projects? And also, how do people reach out to you? Well, people can reach me through the Highland Institute. Um, we have an office in Kohima, and we have a staff there that knows where I am and can contact me. And, you know, I think people coming to Kohima or working in Kohima can just go to the Institute. That's your home. You know, we have tea and coffee, and we have desks, and we have internet, and, and I think it's a great place. We have a library. It's a great place to, to do research. Um, my own work right now is starting to focus on epics, oral epics. I was working with a group of Carby scholars in Carby Long, recording a 35-hour epic, which is twice as long as the Iliad. I mean, it's there's a lot of this kind of incredible knowledge in the oral literature. Um, so I worked with uh, Daram Singh Theron um, and a team of Carby scholars in recording that epic. And I think that's just one variation of a whole subset of sort of oral epics and oral narratives. Um, so we're, I, I feel like this is kind of a, a field that needs to be explored further. 
And um, I'm very excited to kind of engage in that. I, and I'm, I'm also interested to see whether we can find similar kinds of genres in, in the Naga areas. I suspect there are, um, but we will have to see. So, yeah. Yeah. Exciting works ahead. And to the listeners, I think this is a very interesting book. I, I mean, one of the things about uh, anthropologists and anthropologists writing books and writing about their uh, fieldwork has to do with, I see anthropologists as a narrator, right, a storyteller, but also at the same time, someone who could bring about this conceptual and theoretical clarity to their work so that there is a progression to the narration that has been given. And I think uh, that uh, this book does justice to that one, this work does, just, uh, does justice to that one. So I think to the listeners, I, you will learn a lot about Nagaland, the Northeast, and also the aspect of trimming uh, in that sense. So I think I would l- like, I mean, I would request everyone to get hold of this uh, very book. And thank you, Dr. Hennessy, for being here with me in New Books Network. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Thank you.